This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And your time. Put our hands together for hip hop. This is what I'm talking about, y'all. It's hip hop. The stories of hip hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who inside of them the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. My name is Mariam Kaba, and I run an organization called Project Nia. Um, the work of Project Nia is to basically end youth incarceration. Um, we're a, an abolitionist organization. We have an interest in ending police and prisons and surveillance. You know, we feel ourselves as part of a larger movement of people who are looking to build a different world where we invest in people and in social goods and we divest from the institutions that harm and kill us. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I'll just start with the one that's the oldest and that's Salt and Prison Blue by Johnny Cash. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around a bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison And time keeps dragging on But that train keeps rolling On down to San Antonio It's one of my favorite songs. It's a song by one of my favorite musicians and artists. I've been a big fan of Cash for many, many years now. I first came across his work um, when I was a teenager because a friend of mine's father was listening to the Folsom Prison album, and uh, it was a live album. And I didn't know anything about Johnny Cash at the time, but I was fascinated by the album. It, the sound was really amazing. The music was amazing. It pulled me in. I was like, who is that? And my friend's dad was like, that's Johnny Cash. And I said, well, who's Johnny Cash? And he said, he's only the biggest and best musician we have. I bet there's rich folks eating from a fancy dining car. They're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars. Well, I know I had it coming. I know I can't be free. But those people keep a moving, and that's what tortures me. This was, I would say, probably sometime in the early 80s, um, maybe 83 or 84, is when I was uh, exposed to him for the first time. And basically since then, I've always had an interest in Cash and his work. Folsom Prison Blues as one of his earliest songs and definitely his first hit, written in 1954, I think, and then released in 1955. This speaks a lot to me as a song and in terms of its meaning and how it sounds and what it's talking about. So that's why I picked that. And I'd let that lonesome whistle blow 
You all talk a lot about rap music um, and hip-hop, and I see Cash as kind of fitting into that mold in his own way. You know, he is someone who grew up um, during the Depression and experienced and saw a lot of hardship, grew up poor, lost his brother, his older brother, who was beloved by him when he was very young, that really kind of seared in his soul and memory this idea of kind of loneliness and of being, being you know, experiencing suffering um, at a very young age. He was exposed early on to prisons and was invited by prisoners to come in and play for them at a time when people weren't going into prisons in the way that they sometimes do today. So... I think that he's empathetic mainly because he lived a life where he saw suffering and pain. He was always somebody who was very religious, had a very religious kind of upbringing, and then he came to his own sense of religion. So the idea of redemption has always been central to him as a person, and also he then gravitated towards music and wrote music that was a lot about redemption, and that has a lot to do with, I think, where he felt a connection to people who were downtrodden, the man in black, you know, that song, and then what he wore, it was to identify with those who are most oppressed, and prisoners were certainly within that category. So I think that that's where I see a lot of resonance between the things he sang about, wrote about, and acted on, and the things that some people see and act on in hip-hop and in rap music. Well, you wonder why I always dress in black Why you never see bright colors on my back And why does my appearance seem to have a somber tone Well, there's a reason for the things that I have on I wear the black for the poor and the beaten down Living in the hopeless, hungry side of town I wear it for the prisoner who has long paid for his crime But is there because he's a victim of the time I wear the black for those who've never read I think I want to say first, before then, that it's important that Folsom Prison Blues is a song that's basically plagiarized while he was in the the Air Force in the 1950s. He watched a B-movie that was about basically a prison Um, And he got inspired and wanted to write something. And the song he's accused of having plagiarized, people can listen to to this day. It's a a song called Crescent City Blues. And it came out a couple of years before he wrote Folsom Prison Blues. In the 1960s, he ends up paying $75,000 as a settlement to this guy named Gordon Jenkins, who wrote, who actually wrote Crescent City Blues. And they asked Cash, you know, to explain, like, how it is that he ended up basically plagiarizing this song. And for him, he was like, you know, I had no idea, first of all, that this song would ever become a hit or famous. It was like almost a test for myself. And he claimed that he was, quote, just try- he wasn't trying to rip anybody off. And that, you know, he rewrote an old song to make his own song. And so 
It's interesting that that song to this day has become so synonymous with him when so much of it was lifted from somebody else's work. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around the bend And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison and time keeps dragging on But that train keeps a-rolling on down to San Antonio When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son Always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die, right? Those are lines that almost anybody, if you say them to them, will recognize them as being part of something they should know if they don't already know it's cash. Um, it's that, like, iconic in our culture. And it's interesting because, that, to me, that's really the least interesting part of the song. It really is. The song itself is about this prisoner who is stuck in one place and lonely and he is watching these trains go by and he's wondering who's on these trains and what are they doing i bet you they're having fun i bet you they're singing and eating all the things that i don't get to do here cash changes the protagonist crescent city blues has a young girl as the main protagonist in Folsom city blues the protagonist is this prisoner he says at one point he's tortured by knowing that life is going on. It's actually like a despondent song. And it also brings up something that's real about people who know something about prison, have been in prison or have had friends in prison, is that prison is supremely boring. It's a really boring place and time stretches out in front of you, boringly and long. And that whole, the beauty of that song is that it really shows the kind of contrast between the moving train and the prisoner who's going nowhere. And I'd let that lonesome whistle blow my blues away. Ladies and gentlemen, Johnny Cash. As I said, I probably heard this song when I was maybe 12 or something. And I grew up in New York City and I was living here at the time. I was really interested in a lot of different things. I danced as a dancer. I had a lot of interest in books and in reading. Um, I come from a family, a return migrant immigrant family, which is basically uh, people who immigrate to a place and then move back to their place of origin. And that happened for me. Um, my parents moved back to Guinea um, in the early 90s. But my parents were African, West African immigrants. And I think that because I spent a lot of my time in my own head, really just kind of thinking about things. I was a sensitive person as a child and as a young person, meaning I really cared about what people thought of both me, but I also cared about other people, like, very intensely. I was moved by stories of struggle. My father worked for the United Nations. I would 
you know, those Halloween trick-or-treat things with, you know, those little boxes that you would get to collect money for orphan kids. Like, that was something that was really meaningful to me as a very young person. I wrote a poem when I was, like, 11 that my mother sent in to some bogus contest that supposedly I won. And they would tell your parents to send in, like, these, you know, this check so your kid could have their poem put onto a plaque. So my mom did that, and I had to, the poem was this poem about a little homeless girl named Jenny. I mean, and I was like 11 writing those kinds of, writing those kinds of poems that were really despondent and sad. You know, I, I think I grew up hearing from my father about the world and politics and struggle and what was going on. I also knew his background and where he came from, having, you know, struggles for the independence of Guinea. And I read books, you know, and one of the first books I read was a book called L'Enfant Noir by Kamara Lai. And then the next book I read when I was 12 was the autobiography of Malcolm X. And that kind of began me on the on a weird journey of interest around issues that maybe people my age weren't that interested in. And so I I think that all those things combined together made me somebody who would be receptive to my friend's father's stories about cash. A ballad behind bars, or you could say real rock from the rock, an unusual musical happening in a most unusual place. The state prison have... I got a letter from the government the other day. And read it and said they were suckers They wanted me for their army or whatever Picture me giving a damn, I said never Here is a land that never gave a damn About a brother like me and myself Because they never did I wasn't with it, but just that very minute It occurred to me, the suckers had authority Cold sweating as I dwell in my cell so I wanted to talk about Black Seal Meow Chaos because it actually is very related to my love of Johnny Cash. I heard the song when I was, I think I was 17, I was turning 18 that fall, but it was like I was just blown away by this song. And I think why I was was because of the video. This is still at the time when MTV is really powerful and videos matter. And I was just blown away. I was just like, what is this song? What, you, what is he talking about? Don't you know they got me rotten in the time that I'm serving? Telling you what happened the same time they're throwing. Four of us packed in a cell like slaves. Oh well, the same motherfucker got us living in his hell. You have to realize what is a form of slavery organized under a swarm of devils. Straight up, where them up on the level? The reasons are several, most of them federal. Here's my plan anyway, and I say I got gusto. But only some I can trust, yo. Some do a bit. So I became super interested in both Public Enemy and in the song and in the imagery of the video, which was of this black man behind bars, captive, very defiant. At one point in the song, you know, here's a man that never gave a damn about a brother like me and myself. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, yes. This is exactly right. This young man, this young black man is refusing to serve in the military. He can't be a black veteran. There's this contradiction there. That's real. And then the government, because he refuses to serve, locks him up for that refusal to serve. So you can't dissent 
Of course, they have authority over your body and your person. The imagery, you know, four of us are packed into a cell like slaves. The connection between incarceration and slavery, right? Making that so explicit. Talking about the cell is hell. Like, yes, prison is not a country club. It is not a beautiful place. It is not a place people go to to be able to, you know, live lives and fulfill their destiny and do all the things that people try to think about prison as being this posh place. And it's not. It's actually hell. My plan said I had to get out and break north. Just like Oliver's neck, I had to get off. My boys had the feds in check. They couldn't try nothing. We had a force to instigate a prison riot. This is what it takes for peace. So I just took a piece. Black for black. It's my time to cut the leash. Freedom to get out to the ghetto. No sellout. Six COs we got. We ought to put their head out. But I'll give them a chance cause I'm civilized. As for rest of the world, they can't realize a cell is hell. I'm a rebel so I rebel. Between bars got me thinking like an animal. Got a woman CEO to call me a copter. She tried to get away and I popped her twice. Right? No one to get nice. I had six CEOs and now it's five to go and I'm serious. Call me delirious but I'm still a captive. I gotta rap this time to break as time grows a tent. I got my steel in my right hand. Now I'm looking for the fence. And then the very end of the song, which, you know, you have this sense that they're going to they're gonna make it, you know, 53 brothers on the run and then we're gone. Like, you think, oh, okay, yeah, they're going to get away. But then you see the video and it's actually Chuck D's head in a noose. I remember watching that and thinking, oh my God, what the hell? And then the white warden smile at the end like yeah I got you at the end I, I won wow you know because if you just listen to the song you're you're really happy at the end you think people actually escaped and they're doing all right and then you watch the video and it's like well no actually this is the reality that would be fantasy this is where you're more likely to end up wow rules of the country, under the laws of the country, Chuck D's not actually innocent. In fact, his, the fact that he invokes public enemy in the lyrics of the song, he's a public enemy, makes him guilty by nature of, it doesn't matter, your dissent is criminalized. So actually, there's this through line between the fact that you may shoot somebody and be, quote, considered a criminal, but you also can be just a criminal in your skin in this country and that you're captive. You know, the whole entire part of that song is about captivity of different kinds of sorts, right? The captivity of slavery, the captivity of the prison, the captivity of, you know, not being able to dissent and being under the control of the government. All those things are there. So actually, it's doing the same thing. It's telling this story about the ways in which so many of our actions in our culture in our country are criminalized across the board. So it was kind of foreshadowing the conversations we're having today about mass incarceration. Because if you think about the time we're talking about, is 1988 is when that's, the album comes out. At that point, we're not talking about mass incarceration at all, even though the numbers of people who are incarcerated have reached their peak at that time. We haven't gotten to the point of talking about it as a mass incarceration phenomenon. So in a way, Chuck D is 
kind of prefiguring the conversation we were going to have later on by talking about the ways, all the different kind of ways that people are being criminalized within the country. Dissent is one of those. of different kinds of messages. You know, I told you my parents were return migrants, uh, which means they came to the country and eventually left. We grew up very aware that we were black people, and that meant something important because we were surrounded by cultural artifacts, people, ideas that were African-centered and African-based. And that's very different because, again, my parents had, my dad came to the United States in the 19, in the early 1960s for school, for college. Um, he came with a specific idea in mind that he would get his degree and then go back to his country to be able to help with the revolution. He came at a, the Pan-Africanist stage of third world organizing and understanding and all of that stuff, right? So that's what he was steeped in and he was steeped in thinking about communist thoughts and socialism and that was his base. By the time my mom came to the country, she came here in 1970. I was born the next year and she came here not knowing a word of English. Very different circumstances than my father's coming here. And though he didn't really know the language well, he knew enough to be able to get around and get along. And I think that kind of my sense of myself as somebody who was born in the U.S., but had a culture and a family and a religion. I was raised Muslim, I am Muslim. I had all these concepts and understandings about Pan-Africanist politics and independence movements of the 1960s and 50s and like directly from my, my dad and his life and his experiences and his friends and who he was in connection and community with. Never forget that you're a black person. Don't ever forget that. If you don't know, by the way, that you're black, that's a problem. You know, he was always like, he would be like, I don't know what you, you know, if he saw me hanging around with white friends, he would be like, I hope you don't ever forget that you're a black person. And he didn't explain that in any, like, way to me. It just was, it was clear then that I should know, like, what that meant and that I should learn more about my history, about myself, about my place in the world. So I grew up with a very, just a, a view of understanding that my blackness was a source of great joy and a great learning and I had this long history of people to look up to, direct linkages, most of my family, like my grandmother and my grandparents were all in Africa, you know, so I would go and visit them. I had that understanding of where they lived and what they were about. And I could speak the language. Thankfully, my parents taught me how to be able to communicate with my family. So I had all of that as a background thing. And my parents were also very much like, you know, you got to do well in school. You got to learn. 
you've got to be twice as good. If you're a woman, you've got to be three times as good. And so I grew up with that understanding and that sense of myself very clearly. The rhyme, it is wicked. Those that don't know how to be pros get evicted. A woman could bear you, break you, take you. Now it's time to rhyme. Can you relate to a sister's open up to make you holler and scream? Hey, yo, let me take it from here, queen. Excuse me, but I think I'm about to, to get into precisely what I am about to do. I'm conversating to the folks who have no what's Lady Quirk so is the first. It's the song that I associate with a particular point of my own life where gender awareness and interest in feminism kind of corresponded. Queen Latifah, like, I just, I can't explain what it felt like to see her on video. This is also a thing where the video made the difference for me over the actual song. And to be honest, I probably can't even remember the lyrics of the song. I just remember the visual imagery and how it was a relief, frankly, to see a black woman that particular black woman on television and on screen rapping. Stereotypes, they got to go. I'ma mess around and flip the scene into reverse. With what? With a little touch of latest first. This album, All Hail the Queen, was just, it just hit me so powerfully. Queen Latifah's presence and her, in that song, gave me some sort of a sense of myself as a woman, as a girl, in a way that I hadn't had, quite frankly. In my mid-teens, I got very politically involved. That's when I, I kind of came to consciousness over the Howard Beach uh, incident that happened in 1986, was when, when I started to I started to actually take action by myself in a decisive way. And I mentioned to you before that I had a sense of myself as a black person. I always understood I was black. I don't think I thought of myself as a woman, a young woman, or a girl. I was around a lot of men in organizing as a young person. And it wasn't until I was assaulted that I began to understand my body differently and myself as a girl in a very different way. Pay me every bit of your attention Like mother, like daughter I would also like to mention I wish for you to bring me to the Bring me to the rhythm Of which is now systematically given Desperately stressing I'm the daughter of a sister Who's the mother of a brother Who's the brother of another Plus one more All four have a job to do We do and it respect due To the mother who's the root of it And next up is me The M-O-N-I-E-L-O-V-E And I'm first Cause I'm a L-A-Z-I-E Afrocentric attire and clothing Moni loves and her presence and her beauty the footage from you know from South Africa during apartheid you know like oh my god the the red black and green you know that evokes the African National Congress and these slides that open up the video of Sojourner Truth and Angela Davis and Winnie Mandela and Madam C.J. Walker, like, what the hell? I didn't know who Madam C.J. Walker was. I had to go and find out who, who she was, and I was amazed to find out more about her and her story. So that video was like an educational piece about black feminism way before I ever gone to college and taken the black feminist course. <laughs> so she was kind of my teacher, you know?
I always like to make sure, though, that, you know, we don't get, there's not one template of sexual violence and sexual assault, and not all survivors of it or victims of it, like, experience the same kinds of things. I think the stories we tell in this country are often really, to me, problematic because it does try to fit one story And I think there is a danger in telling one story about anything. But I want to say that for me, the experience of that shaped me into starting to ask questions that were different questions that I had had before. Who am I now? What is my identity? What is this body that I have? How do I make sense of the world that I'm in? How do I deal with fear? How do I overcome that? I I joined the the Women's Center at my university. I ran the Southern Africa Committee. I was uh, part of the Black Students Network leadership. I like got involved right on campus on so many levels. I became incredibly interested in issues of violence against women and girls. To this day, if that's a central part of my organizing, my life, my commitments, my political commitment, it was helpful to me to begin to learn about black women and our role in history and in the world and in the current strategy, I think that video really helped me. It sparked in me an interest in knowing more about black women. about Prince because I love Prince so much. He is the person who, as an artist, I was most shaped by as a young person. Before I came to learn about Cash, I learned about Prince through Purple Rain. And the movie came out, I was like 12. I was blown away by this film. It was a rated R, I think, film. And I was supposed to go with, like, grown people or whatever, but my friends and I went out by ourselves, and we went to this movie, and we were mesmerized, not just by the soundtrack, but by the purple, you know? So you've got Cash as the man in black, you have Prince as the man in purple, but he's, like, this androgynous person, sexuality out front, at a time when I didn't even understand my sexuality or who I was or whether I could be a sexual person, I, I wasn't even sure, but I loved him. And when he sang Purple Rain, I was in tears.
loved him for so many reasons. I followed him all the way through. I went to a concert of his in Paris, saved money and flew and went to see him. Even the albums that people said were crap, I loved. <laughs> so, so I can't tell you how devastating this year's been. I mean, I, I posted a long treatise about how much Prince meant to me when he died the day he died. And I can't, I just, I, I'm lucky that I grew up at a time with an artist like him. That's just the truth of it. So I did want to put in my Prince plug because of how much I love him and how it would be incomplete to talk about music without him as a central part of my interest in music and my development as a person. Nobody in my family was a Prince fan. I mean, I didn't have conversations with my siblings about him. Uh, my parents were not huge Prince fans that I can think of, but maybe they were. I, I, I didn't get a chance to really ask them about it. It felt like Prince was my thing. I don't know, maybe I felt like I, in my own way, discovered him. Of course I didn't. You see, he was obviously well known before Purple Rain. Um, he'd already put out Little Red Corvette and, you know, a few other songs and I, that I hadn't known at the time. But after Purple Rain, then I, be I began to look for absolutely everything that he'd ever done. I'm so mad at myself to this point because, you know, everything was on record, 45 uh, larger LPs, and I bought Erotic City in a, and it was a pink album. I played that thing to death. I played it all the time in my room by myself. I would play it constantly. And now to this day, I'm like, where the hell is that album? <laughs> I don't know where it is. I keep yelling at people about it. I'm like, who has all of those albums? And I remember that we did this thing where, when I left for school. For some reason, my parents got rid of all my LPs. <laughs> Just like, I don't even understand how that's possible. <laughs> I mean, music is part of life and part of joy and part of connecting to emotion and everything, really. I love music. I always have. I listen to it all the time. As I mentioned, I grew up in an eclectic house around music. So it matters incredibly to me on so many levels. When I'm sad, I listen to a certain kind of music. When I'm needing to be pumped up, I listen to a certain kind of music. When I need inspiration, I listen to a certain kind of music. So for me, very, very important to just a whole different part of myself, my self-care, my healing, everything. And then hip-hop to me matters. I think that people have used the Chuck D's very kind of tossed away statement about hip-hop and rap particularly being the CNN for black people. And I think for me, for my generation and growing up, 
I'm turning 45 this year. I think that was really ostensibly true, that it was not just like our CNN or like how we knew about what was going on in the world. It was instructional and taught us about ourselves and our communities in ways that I don't think anything else really could or did. And it was a, as a cultural form, as we've seen, the impact is untold. I don't even know, like, what kind of country would we be without the experience of hip-hop having come into being at the time that it did? I don't even know. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around the bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in prison, and time keeps dragging on. 